Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Infection Prevention in Conversation, brought to you by the Journal of Hospital Infection and Infection Prevention in Practice, the journals of the Healthcare Infection Society. I'm Gemma Windsor, Editor-in-Chief of Infection Prevention in Practice. Today, I'm really excited to be able to say we've got two fantastic guests. First of all, uh, Dr. Mike Weinbrenn, consultant microbiologist and antimicrobial resistance diagnostic clinical lead for NHS England and NHS Improvement. And Dr. Teresa Inkster, consultant microbiologist at NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, NHS Assure and antimicrobial resistance and healthcare associated infection Scotland. So uh, we're really excited for them to share their experience and insight with us all for a topic that I think most of us find a little bit daunting uh, because we don't come across it necessarily that often in day-to-day life as infection control practitioners. So the topic of today's podcast is the infection and prevention control risks of water and wastewater drains in augmented care. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I'd like to start off, if you don't mind, perhaps just talking us through a little bit about how you got involved with, with water and the infection prevention risks of water on augmented care. Well, I, I, actually, my first interest in water actually dated back when I was an SHO. I was working at Queen Mary's University Hospital, Roehampton, and they'd built a brand new burn unit. And in the lab in those days, we used to test the bedpan washer disinfectors by putting a soil of Enterococcus faecalis in a urine bottle putting it in the washer disinfector uh, and then testing afterwards to see whether the Enterococcus had gone. Uh, so we did it and we didn't grow Enterococcus, we grew Pseudomonas. We repeated it again and we grew Pseudomonas. And my, the consultant I worked for had a great joy because in the morning the burns unit had been opened and the afternoon she went and shut the burn unit. And what had happened was the the cold water tank was made up of subunits and they'd used the wrong materials. And why we were growing Pseudomonas was that after going through the thermal disinfection cycle, it went through a flush. And so the the, 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 the Pseudomonas was waiting there for the burns units, uh, burns unit patients to come in. So that was my first experience with water. And, and funnily enough, I also met who Joachim Kohn, who in 1967, he was retired then, but he was a well-respected chemical pathologist. Um, but you're always told, you know, keep away from him. He's got funny microbiology ideas. As soon as somebody says that to you, of course, you want to go and have lunch with them. And he was the one who in 1967 pointed out to the world in, the, in, a, in response to a leading article in the British Medical Journal that they underestimated the risk of pseudomonas being transmitted from water outlets. And he provided scientific data to show that he had found pseudomonas in outlets, which was then transferred to Burns patients. But unfortunately, his views were ridiculed. Uh, and there was this unwritten folklore amongst microbiologists that organisms went from the patient to the sink uh, and not vice versa. And this stood in place until 2012. It, it kind of unbelievable. Uh, and the other thing he did was in 1970, he published in the Lancet the design for the first thermally disinfecting waste trap. Uh, because he said he thought this is where a lot of the organisms were coming from. And I think a number of the themes we see in the papers around water is some of the people were ahead of their time, and it's taken a long time for people to catch up. And now we think, you know, waste traps are a significant, uh, wastewater systems are a significant source of infection. Thanks, Michael. I'll come on to talk talk about when that evolution (coughs) happened a bit later, if you don't mind. Teresa, how did your interest get peaked and when did you first become involved? 
Yeah, so my first day as a consultant back in 2009, um, I found myself in the middle of a water incident at one of our older hospitals um, that two of my um, Vitch Control Doctor colleagues were dealing with. Unfortunately, they didn't just leave me to it. Um, so I was able to join that incident and learned quite a lot from that. And basically we had um, an old building. We had a problem with Legionella, zero groups two to 14 throughout. And we had a number of you know, vulnerable patient groups within the building. Um, so we implemented a chlorine dioxide system to control that. And it had come about because one of the wards had vacated and moved across the city. So we had an empty unit for many months and there hadn't been any flushing taking place. So that was a really important learning point. I jumped straight from that to an incident that I led, and that was a, a possible hospital-acquired case of Legionella, um, again, in a vulnerable patient, a hemato-oncology patient. And that really um, emphasised to me the importance of, you know, having important documentation, your water temperatures, your chlorine dioxide levels. We had HSE involvement, you know, the importance of having Legionella risk assessments, water safety plans, all of that. So I had a very early introduction to water. Um, and much of it was in relation to Legionella. And it wasn't until a bit later in my career that I um, became involved with you know, other environmental gram negatives like Pseudomonas and the Cupriovadis. Mike, you've touched on something that I was going to come on to ask anyway, actually, which is that it seems like the role of the water outlet and the drain has relatively recently really come into the spotlight, particularly for augmented care and neonatal units. Why do you think that happened? Well, I, I think there are, there are a couple of things going on. and. Um... I mean, it's interesting what happened in, in Belfast with the neonatal outbreak, the four deaths, suddenly changed everything overnight. And similarly, it's interesting in Scotland, when they've had the Glasgow Hospital infected and they've had the Edinburgh Hospital infected, and because they've had two hospitals, which are you know, their main population centres, they've done something about this. There have been there are other outbreaks of pseudomonas reported in other countries where there have been three or four neonatal deaths. In fact, neonatal deaths have been going for a long time. And I think some, it might be something to do with the population size. Um, Belfast is the major centre. I think this attracted a tremendous amount of attention and maybe that built up and this is why it got, it got national and international interest and perhaps... It's the same reason in Scotland, because I said there have been outbreaks elsewhere. But neonatal deaths have been going on since 1967, but we have not made the link with water. So that, that changed things overnight. Um, it had a tremendous impact on water safety. We saw the HTMs come out. Uh, I think the other thing is when you look at the literature relating to, to the environment, probably in general, is it's highly overrepresented with highly antibiotic resistant organisms. And I think what we're seeing with wastewater systems now is seeing increasing number of reports. And this is matching the rise in antimicrobial resistance. And I think the feeling is that these antibiotic resistant organisms, they possess no special adaptation uh, for spread from, from wastewater systems. So what they do is they attract our attention. They attract our attention. We have an outbreak meeting. We track it back to the wastewater and this gets into the publications. Um, and I think the other thing which reinforces this is Hugh Topman, who developed the first uh, reduced water ITU. They went to water-free bathing in Holland. Um, as a result of an intractable uh, outbreak with a highly resistant organism uh, coming from drains. And what they found is they successfully got rid of the highly antibiotic resistant organism. But when they looked at the rates of transmission of other organisms, these also dropped. So it suggests 
that we are getting spread of organisms from wastewater systems, but our surveillance has not been good enough to spot the sensitive organisms. They're much more difficult to pick up. They blend into the background. Uh, and when you think about it, we haven't got an accepted level of what we call endogenous carriage of pseudomonas in these areas, beyond which you suspect having an outbreak. And I think the last thing, just to confirm that, is there was a nice study, it was Mark Garvey and other people, uh, but they looked at four UK hospitals, augmented care units using whole genome sequencing, and they were just looking at water. Uh, and none of these units thought they had any spread from water systems. Uh, and in three out of four hospitals, they, they could show ongoing spread of sensitive organisms. And that, that paper is very interesting and it's very topical that you brought that up because the podcast we recorded last week, Jim Gray and Nick Mahida, the editor and editor-in-chief of JHI, were invited to pick their favourite and most impactful papers from 2021 and that was selected. I think one of the really important limitations of that paper, which the authors recognised in their discussion, was that they weren't able to take surveillance swabs for endogenous pseudomonas carriage on entry to ITU. So that still remains a bit of a research gap, if you will. And I do want to come on to talk about surveillance and screening when we talk about the papers a bit later on. Uh, Teresa, is there anything you'd like to add about how, why you think it's become more of a topical issue for infection control practitioners? No, I would agree with Mike. I think it's raised awareness, but also I do think there's um, improvements in diagnostics. So when I first started in microbiology, many organisms we would report as, you know, unidentified gram-negative rods. And now with the advances, we're actually able to name things and that's drawing our attention to more unusual environmental gram-negatives. So I think that's um, maybe a factor also. And also, um, you know, developments in typing and whole genome sequencing has given us um, some answers to these complex issues. On the topic of that identification, uh, in your experience of dealing with some of the more unusual environmental gram-negative outbreaks, could you rely on MOLDITOF to, to identify those um, accurately or did you have to rely on other methods? Mostly we could actually. We had very good identification with MOLDI. Occasionally we had to um, use Vitec and on the odd occasion it was 16SPCR, but largely that we found that they were growing on our traditional agars that we would use in the water lab and that MOLDI was a, a good means to identify them. Okay, so, so one of the questions that I know Mike and I have discussed going back over the years that I think is really pertinent to this topic is, is around subspecialisation within infection control. And given the changes that we've had, I mean, in all sorts of arenas, but I suppose the ones that are immediately obvious to me are the changes we've had to the combined infection training and how microbiologists and infection specialists are trained. Add to that the increasing complexity of infection control and the increased vulnerability and immunocompromised status of the patients that we're managing in hospitals. Do you think there's an argument now for subspecialisation and further training with infection control, things like fellowships, for example, in infection control to help trainees and junior infection control doctors develop these subspecialist skills? Because these kind of outbreaks or incidents, they may happen relatively infrequently to an individual during the course of their career. No, I, 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 I think I think there is, and I, th I think um, infection control is becoming more and more complex. And I think one of the failings, well, perhaps it's not a failing of the HTM, which came out on water, was this handed over a lot of responsibility for infection control now to come into a multidisciplinary group. But unfortunately, no training followed this, and you know, guidance is not training. So a gap developed, and whereas for Legionella this gap, which is mainly around engineering controls, could be filled by water treatment companies. This was their province. The periphery of the water system, where it's the way staff, uh, it's important they interact with water services, that was really the province of infection control. 
and we never really gave them a chance to learn about these. And there's a number of aspects to this because I think when we're looking at new builds and things go wrong in new builds, um, you know, part of it, and this is, I'm not just talking about infection control, is we bring people in, they may have a certain title, but it doesn't mean they're actually bringing something to the table. And I think there's lots of examples, I'm just picking on infection control here, but you may come as an infection control specialist and the assumption by the outside world is you know everything about infection control. And unless you've got expertise in this area, you're not going to actually help in, in, in moving the project forward. I think several years ago, I think it must have been the mid 1980s, uh, there was a survey done of um, uh, senior registrars, it was only senior registrars then, as they left, as they'd got their, they'd passed their final exams, and they asked about the training. And one of the things that came out, which stood out, was the area they felt the least comfortable with was infection control training. It's very difficult to actually replicate. So these were people coming into new consultant jobs. They hadn't got the experience behind them. Uh, and unfortunately, our colleagues in <laughs> places, you were a new consultant and the first jo job they would put you in would be an infection control doctor. So I think, you know, we, I think we do need to do something. I mean, although we've got some excellent infection control expertise in this country and we've actually contributed so much on a global scale, I think we could do more for individuals. You know, in Germany, it's a proper apprenticeship there. So I'm not saying it goes there, but at the moment, I think we're not providing this training. And as you said, most of the training people encounter is you run into a problem, you then learn about it. And by the end of the problem, you, you know an awful lot, which you wished you knew at the beginning. You know, we talk about medical training, infection control, but I think everybody's suffering from this infection control. You know, in some ways, I think people feel we're a bit unrepresented at the moment. You know, do we need a professional body for infection control, which brings in the nursing, the clinical scientists and the medical expertise so we can now move forward to meet the challenges uh, in the future? Theresa, it certainly sounds as though you had a very steep learning curve when you first took on the consultant role. Do you agree with Mike's sentiments? Do you think further subspecialization within infection control had you had sort of regional experts in the built environment would you have found that useful as someone to, to get further experience from yeah absolutely I mean I think there's two aspects I think the role of the infection control doctor has evolved over the years so certainly when I was an ICD you're responsible for so many different aspects so surveillance incidents you know education policy and then a built environment project comes along an environmental incident and that's very resource intensive so it's trying to fit that around your normal job plan, but also bringing yourself up to date with guidance, because if you're not doing these things every day, then you're not up to date with the guidance. Um, so, yeah, that, that's challenging for infection control doctors. And I have thought about, you know, in a, in a big centre like Glasgow, whether we have leads for each particular area and we have, you know, a built environment lead. And that would work in a big centre, a big city, but not so much in a smaller hospital where you may only have one infection control doctor. And that's where it would be really useful to have access, you know, to a regional expert. I think also with training, I'm a training programme director and, you know, most of our trainees will at some stage feedback that they do not feel equipped to deal with infection control. Um, and part of the challenge, as you say, is the change in training and they're now spending, you know, half the time in microbiology than previously. And they're also um, combined trainees, so they're qualifying infectious diseases as well as microbiology. And many don't want to drop, you know, the infectious diseases component when they get a consultant post. So an infection control role becomes less attractive and, you know, more difficult to fit into a job plan 
So I think these are the challenges. And absolutely, when I think back to the position I was in at a very early stage of my career, having access to regional expertise and more training courses to better equip me would have been something that I would have preferred. If you could give some advice to junior infection control practitioners, people who are facing these problems for the first time, what advice would you give them? What, what guidelines, what documents are out there? If you could give them one or two pieces of advice going into an incident or a project for a new built environment. Yeah, I mean, the guidance, I think, are one thing. So obviously being familiar with those, but it can be very difficult because they are quite um, cumbersome for um, people to pick out what's actually relevant. And I think for me, it was having access to senior colleagues and not being afraid to ask for help. Um, so senior colleagues, but also experts around the country. I mean, I'm not sure how many times I phoned Peter Hoffman about ventilation issues. So yeah, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and ask for, for advice from other people who've been in, in that position. But yeah, there's obviously the guidelines, but there are various um, courses that you can do. I'm not sure that that's a substitute for, you know, dealing with on the ground incidents. That's something that comes with experience. So just trying to get as much of that as possible. Mike, your top tips? Well, I think I think if you're going to a new build, uh, and I think, you know, we're learning more and more that actually problems with new builds are actually common. They're probably the norm. Uh, we, 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 the tip, make the headlines. Um, I, I think what's important there, and it's learning for everybody in, in a new build, uh, and we, we've got to get, we've got to get hospitals when they're going to this chief executives to understand that you're no longer facilitating a project. You know, if you're a chief executive, you see you'll employ a company to build a new hospital, you think they're going to come and do it. You don't understand all the problems. So you've got to move from facilitating to actually taking control of this. And when it comes to water, if you've got a new project, the first thing is, you know, is there a risk around water? And if there is a risk, your, your first risk assessment is to look at what the risks are. You know, have you got high risk patient groups? Have you got, you know, speciality water services in there? And then you, you've got to appoint right at the beginning, all the people with the expertise and make sure they've got the expertise and do a gap analysis just to make sure everybody's there. But I think what's important for entrenched control is even if you've got the experience, uh, you need to, in a big project, you really need to be taken out of your day job. You can't carry on doing both at the same time. It's impossible. Uh, and I think certainly in fetch control has a massive contribution to new builds. So it's not right that you're only there part of the time. So you need to be backfilled and you need to be make sure you're put into a management structure so people listen to your views as you go along. Uh, so often, in a, certainly when I've been involved in a new build, uh, I suppose it's not new to me, but you know everybody hates you. The, the the construction company hates you because you're telling them to do things right, and your own team hates you because you're, you're slowing everything down. But you're doing it for the right purpose. If you get involved right up front before the design stage and can influence these things, actually it shouldn't slow down the project. It may actually speed it up because you're not going to run into uh, hidden problems. So next, if you don't mind, I was hoping we could move on to some relevant papers on the topic. You both kindly selected some papers that you felt had really influenced your practice when dealing with these infection control risks. The first one is a paper that Mike suggested um, he'd found really useful. It was published in July 2012 in the JHI by uh, Breith Nakatao, multidrug-resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa outbreaks in two hospitals, an association with contaminated hospital water waste systems. These were authors from London and from Brighton. 
And they reported two hospital outbreaks of a multi-drug resistant pseudomonas where the hospital waste pipe system was likely reservoir and the source of infection. Now, one of these outbreaks was really, really very significant. So it went on from 2005 to 2011, identified 85 cases and was spread over 21 clinical areas. So huge, huge uh, outbreak with a, a real longevity to it. Mike, why did you pick this paper? What did you think it added to what we already understand of this topic? Well, I, I, I think this paper is ahead of its time. You know, I, I wished I'd written the paper. If I'd written that paper, I'd have retired after I'd written it because I'd have thought, hell, I've achieved what I want to do in life. Uh, I thought it was wonderful. You can peak too early, Mike. You can uh, peak too well, early. Uh, I, think, I think this paper was probably, again, as we talked about Joachim Kant, I think this was ahead of its time. Yes, they took a long time to find this out. But if you put that into perspective, you know, 1967, Kant said pseudomonas came from water outlets it took us 45 years you know to the outbreak in in Belfast and you know this was a complex problem and they found that this was linked to the wastewater systems but I I, I think it's wonderful that the degree of thoroughness they're thinking in there you know they're saying this is a multi-drug resistant organism but again highlighting that actually other organisms may have been transmitted at the same time they've highlighted common findings in hospital I think you know, not, I think they reported almost 400 blockages of drains in that hospital a year. Staff haven't been trained to report blockages. All of these things are terribly important. And though it's in the literature, we really haven't moved on that much. Installation of, um, they talk about installation of macerators and 90 degree bends. It's interesting, the work I'm doing up, up in Scotland uh, we see people installing macerators. They've got a 90-degree bend in there. If you look at the manufacturer's guidance, they say they have to have a nice swept bend, but nobody's doing this because if you have a swept bend, it has an impact on the size of your, your, your flooring because it, it, it obviously takes a wider curve. But once you get those 90-degree bends and you get blockages, not only is it a nuisance that these blockages potentially for the rest of the life of the building. But, you know, these are dangerous. Blockages actually can lead to patients' deaths because this causes resistant organisms and sensitive organisms uh, to come up through wastewater systems and be transmitted uh, to patients. So I think if really we'd taken everything they were saying on board back then, we were more receptive to it. I think things may have changed more rapidly, but I think the state we're in now, you go back and a lot of the things we should have been doing are actually in that paper. So it's almost a case of the retrospectoscope is a wonderful instrument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, th I thought it was a great paper. There are a couple of really nice parts of this outbreak that are described in the paper that also really reinforce some of the points that we've discussed. As I've already said, it went on for six years and, and the authors admit that it took them a long time to understand a widespread environmental reservoir, as they call it, for the pseudomonas. And th this was actually a VIM producing multi-drug resistant pseudomonas that was only sensitive to colistin. So actually it was relatively easy to screen for using regular culture methods. I think exactly this highlight and raises another question that we've already sort of touched on, which is what would the actual burden of transmission be of all the organisms all yeah. the sensitive organisms, all of the other enterobacterialis that would be coming from these drains. The other thing it highlights, I think, is six years. Like these outbreaks are real. They're marathons, not sprints, aren't they? That, you know, that is a huge amount of time and resource that would have gone into understanding and then controlling this outbreak. And it then brings me on to the role of screening. So the authors of this paper do touch on screening and then we can come on to talk about that 
with the paper as well that Teresa Teresa spoke about. I mean, what do you think, Mike, is the role of screening both in an outbreak situation and just for background surveillance in a non-outbreak situation? I suppose, how would you know what situation you were in? Um, but what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, yes, I'm not sure. I mean, you need to screen. I mean, I think even in an outbreak, you need to screen patients because you need to define your outbreak. You know, it's very easy. Those are the ones that got it. You put control measures in them, but there are other patients that got it. And when we're talking about the areas we're talking about here, augmented care areas, these are nucleus areas. So you 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 can see the hospital, you know, quite quickly unless you get uh, a control of these things. So I think in the outbreak, if you talk about screening people on admission for pseudomonas and things to get a baseline, I think we do. I think we do need to do some work on that to work out what the basic level of carriage is. There was an interesting report from a burn unit from Switzerland where they saw the rates of pseudomonas going up, I think, from about 30% to over 40%. And they, they, they couldn't work out whether this was a reflection of endogenous carriage or exogenous. And three years down the line, they actually managed to develop a typing system to show that an outbreak. So it does cause problems even that setting. Having said that, if they'd gone back to look at hydrotherapy in the burn unit right at the beginning, they would have found all sorts of things uh, which, which were wrong, which were contributing to this. Are there other things you're thinking of screening about? Or? No, no, I was just I was just wondering, because I know as I went through my training and worked in many different centres, the extent to which people screen, the patient groups people screen, how we screen, the methodology of screening, what organisms we look for, it's very centre to centre specific. Um, so that's why I was just wondering. And I know, I know it would be because everybody has got different issues. I mean, the, the pa that paper we previously talked about, the Halstead et al paper looking at pseudomonas in the four augmented care units, the one thing that I really took away from that is you have to know your own unit. You have to understand the issues specific to your unit to be able to implement measures that are relevant to you because of those four units that were examined by those authors, they had completely different epidemiology in each unit. So I can understand that it's not a one case fits all solution regarding screening. Yeah. Um, and th the lastly, just to summarise this paper, I'll just read out just to, I think, focus the listeners' minds on exactly how difficult it is to actually address these outbreaks and the, the bundles of measures that are required. And I quote, um, measures included enhanced cleaning and decontamination measures, the refurbishment and replacement of taps, sinks and toilets and sluice areas where these were identified as suboptimal. After recognition in 2011 that the waste pipe system was a likely reservoir of infection, measures were targeted at reducing back contamination of clinical areas. These included avoidance of inappropriate storage of clean items in sluice areas, education of staff to reduce the number of waste pipe blockages, switching paper towels to a more degradable type, upgrading hand wash basins to models with integral back outlets and introduction of a rimless toilet pan. I mean, that, that is a massive bundle of interventions that are going to be extremely resource intensive to implement, both financially and time-wise. Yeah, I think they are they're they're intensive once you've once you've built a hospital. The thing is, we're built, so we're true. about we're, we're about to go through a major new build of hospitals in this country. Uh, I don't think there's been any uh, change to the design of or look at wastewater systems, uh, and we know that wastewater systems now are a significant well, not only sensitive organisms, but in terms of antimicrobial resistance, this is a significant source within the hospitals. You know, these, these many of these organisms are found on the gut flora, so again, they get in the waste systems. And the way the waste systems operate, it's amazing how these organisms can actually move around the building. 
And I think, you know, nobody's filling this void at the moment. Nobody has looked at redesigning the waste systems to reduce the risk. And if we don't reduce the risk uh, and it's not all joined up, then all we have is infection control teams having to firefight. We need to try and design these out now. Uh, for instance, you know, if you just look at simple things as design of a shower, where do we often ask the patient to stand? We ask them to stand right on top of the drain, which is connected to the wastewater system. It doesn't make sense. Teresa, thank you for the paper that you've suggested. This was Wastewater Drains, Epidemiology and Interventions in 23 Carbapenem-Resistant Organism Outbreaks. It was published in 2018 in Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology and is by Philippe Patel. So this was a really, really nice paper, actually. A review, as I've already said, of 23 Carbapenem-Resistant Outbreaks. Now, these were all reported between 1990 and 2018 via um, found via a PubMed database search. And the, the authors included criteria and then analysed and compared papers which, one, investigated clinical outbreaks uh, with epidemiology of wastewater drain-associated transmission of carbapenem-resistant organisms, two, that utilised advanced microbiological methods to establish coloniality of outbreak pathogens and or resistance genes, and three, that described interventions implemented to mitigate transmission of outbreak pathogens from wastewater drains. So, um, Teresa, would you mind just explaining why you picked this paper and um, why you found it helpful? Yeah, so um, in 2018, I found myself chairing an incident management team for a very complex water incident, which wasn't just about um, contaminated water supply, but also um, significant issues with the drainage system as well. Um, and one of the difficulties I had were was convincing people that we had a problem um, because it was something new for us that we hadn't encountered before. And people would say to me, yeah, but drains are dirty. And people couldn't really understand how organisms in the drain reach the patient and why drains were such a risk. So I think this paper really just highlighted to me and others that problems with drains and outbreaks linked to drains have been going on for some time. You know, this paper, they take it back to the 1990s. Um, one of the things that was striking for me from this paper that we've touched on already was the low number of cases and also the long interval between cases as well. So these outbreaks are very subtle, even for your resistance pathogens. And it does make you wonder how many ongoing outbreaks we have of sensitive organisms that we're simply not detecting. Um, but also what was striking was the length of time that it took people involved in the incidents to actually think about drains and implement relevant control measures. And in some cases, that was years. Also, certainly when I was involved, the kind of reflex action I had was to start cleaning the drain. And, you know, they discussed that in the paper that lots of, you know, centres have used bleach and other agents. And that in itself is unlikely to be successful. And it goes back to what we were just discussing about having that bundled approach and multiple interventions. What was interesting for me is even with a bundled approach, multiple interventions, removing sinks, your problems came back. And that's because of issues further down the pipework and the biofilm, you know, creeping back up there. So... I still think about this paper. I still think that drains are an area that we haven't quite cracked. We don't have any guidance. I think there's an awful lot of research that we need to do and develop some you know, guidance for infection control teams when they're faced with these issues. Um, so it's still really making me think what we should do when we have a drain problem. I certainly think it supports the argument to move to a more you know, waterless environment or certainly reducing the number of um, sinks that we do have. And just to back up on um, what you've said, to quote the authors, the similarities between reports, particularly related to the finding of high frequencies of wastewater drain colonisation, very low incidence density of cases, often less than one a month, the typically long interval between cases with over 68% of outbreaks having months 
with no identified cases, as well as documentation of multi-level mitigation failures are notable and highly consistent between reports. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's the perfect storm of yeah. an outbreak that's difficult to spot. And then add to that, that they also then, the authors also summarise that late recognition of an outbreak seemed to be associated with a much longer outbreak. Mm -hmm. So you've got outbreaks that are very, very difficult to spot and are getting are going to be much worse if you can't spot them early. So really, really challenging for an infection control practitioner. One of the things that I wanted to ask, I don't know whether you feel this is a problem, either of you, but 95% of patients within this study were all focused in high risk settings, as one would expect. Do you think we are overlooking certain patient populations or do you think that genuinely this isn't a problem in, for example, um, community hospitals, um, rehab facilities? Is it just not a problem there because of the lack of um, use of uh, invasive devices or do you think it's something that we just don't look for so we've never realised? Um, obviously, these patient groups are more high risk because, like you say, they do have invasive devices. They will be immunosuppressed. Um, so I think they are more susceptible to these sort of outbreaks. But I do suspect that they are going unnoticed um, in other areas um, where we perhaps don't have the same surveillance. I mean, in Scotland, some of our alert organisms are based solely on high-risk and augmented care units, so we're not really looking elsewhere. Neither are we doing any routine water testing elsewhere. Um, so I do suspect that we'll be missing outbreaks in these lower-risk areas. How we detect those, I'm not sure. It's whether we would expand our surveillance and you know, make things like Pseudomonas and Stenotrophomonas alert organisms um, throughout these areas. The difficulty arises, I think, with drains because you're talking about things like Entrobacters, Klebsiella's and E. coli's, which are part, obviously, of the normal gut flora. So it's trying to sort of separate all that out. Yeah, I, I think this will challenge our, our thinking over the risk from water because you know, normally we talk about, certainly with Pseudomonas, we, we, we say the risks around augmented care areas. With the Legionella pneumophila sera group one, well, that can affect everybody. I think the thing about the CPEs and augmented care areas, we're very focused on augmented care areas in terms of microbiology. And with highly antibiotic resistant organisms, especially with CPEs where it's on the plasmid, it perhaps is not, even if the patient doesn't become infected, they're spreading resistance around the hospital. And, and there've been a couple of reports where outbreaks have emanated from kitchens. So for example, in, in the cardiothoracic unit in Manchester, it was, it was thought to be coming from the kitchen on the ward. But in Germany, they just, um, Professor Exner described a very nice outbreak where a hospital had a basal level of a, a known CPE. It used to get one case perhaps every two months, and then suddenly the numbers became extremely high. They did a very nice case-controlled study, which showed it was coming from salads, but they tested the salads. The salads were not positive when they were supplied. Um, what they found was in the main kitchen of the hospital, uh, water was hitting, directly hitting a drain and splashing on salads nearby. And so you can think what we say about sinks in a clinical hand wash station, we say, hey, you don't want water to directly hit a drain, but that was happening in a kitchen sink. And you don't want to put a carbon source. All of these things will be going down the kitchen sink. Um, but there was another element to this because the, the main kitchen was not in the same building as the main hospital. So the question was, how did that strain from the hospital get into the kitchen? And what they found was that the drain in the kitchen had been blocked and somebody had used the main coil, which had gone down the main sewer in the hospital to unblock the drain in the kitchen. And when they swabbed that coil, uh, they found uh, the resistant strain. So I think these will challenge us everywhere, whether we will spot them. And as Teresa said, that very nice paper in Carling showing it can take a long time to see these things. 
on other areas of the hospital where you're less focused, your microbiology, but it also challenges your surveillance. You can't any longer just look at it by ward level because these can come from central areas and kitchens and affect, you know, the whole hospital. And if you're getting that drip, drip, drip effect, it may be difficult to trace it back to that. Thank you, Mike. Lastly, on this paper, the authors state that furthermore definitive literature of the long-term effectiveness of interventions to de decontaminate wastewater drains is required. What experience do you have of different interventions that you've used or employed in outbreaks or incidents that you've been involved with? Yeah, certainly requires a bundle of different interventions. So obviously we went down the cleaning route, but we also had to investigate the drains and deal with what we found to be underlying structural abnormalities. Um, so one of the problems that we had was the drain was not contiguous with the back of the sink. So there was an area at the back of the sink where we had pooling and stagnation of water. So that's a risk. Um, we also had a component, an aluminium spigot that was heavily corroded. So it's about looking about, you know, what components you have in your water system, ensuring there are none liable to corrosion. That was there. And we had problems with sealant. So we had excess sealant, um, which was causing obstruction to the drain and, you know, further contributing to stagnation and biofilm formation. So we had to address all of those um, structural issues. In addition to that, and I think something that's often missed is we had to look at behavioural aspects as well. So um, we found lots in our drains. We found pieces of plastic, pieces of equipment, small toys. We had evidence of various fluids being decanted um, down drains. So we have to tackle that aspect as well. And I think, you know, we need to think about when we're designing these augmented care units how we try and build in um, components to, to deal with human behaviour and part of the problem for us was a huge ward with only one sluice so it's a long distance for nursing staff to travel it was a long distance to the parent kitchen so you know cups of coffee are going down the sink I'm sure we've all, all done that sort of thing so I think we need to you know think about behavioural interventions as part of those bundles around sink hygiene and emphasise that it's only for hand hygiene nothing else no bodily fluids no cups of coffee a problem we had was storage of toiletries and cosmetics around the surfaces of the sinks and that means that they can't be adequately cleaned and that's a further source of nutrition for you know biofilm so absolutely would agree that it's um, a bundled approach that is required. Thank you that's really useful. So before I wrap up is there anything else either of you would like to say before we um, bring the, the podcast to an end? Yeah, I suppose we've spoken a lot about augmented care units and I feel that we need to think perhaps um, beyond the guidance and more about how we design these and whether we need to think about water quality and what we mean by water quality. So often we hear about water being wholesome and meeting drinking water regulations, but that's not sufficient for immunosuppressed patients. We need to think about the quality of water that they might be bathing or showering in. And it's whether we need to implement additional control measures in these units. So, for example, long term use of point of use filters has been a measure introduced elsewhere or even, you know, standalone disinfection systems. So we need to just have a think about is there anything more that we can do? for these um, high-risk areas in terms of design. And Mike? Yeah, I, I think, well, Teresa, I think gave a very nice overview of the, of, the, uh, of the risks from drains. I mean, one other thing that Teresa and I have come across is, um, which is connected with drains, and we know one group have actually looked for a solution, is that if you're collecting water, you know, either from a point of use filter, ordinary water in a receptacle, or even a, a jug of water for a patient, people tend to put the receptacle on top of the drain in the sink. And this has been responsible for transmission events. Um, so we haven't designed anything to stop 
the base of these receptacles for coming into contact with the drain when people are collecting water. But in Norwich, uh, they, they've actually developed their own method. And what they do, they have a sink, but they have, it, it comes down and, and it's a rest. So it goes over the sink, you can put it down so the bowl can go on there and reduce the risk of, of the receptacle coming into contact with the drain. But you see on high-risk units, very high-risk units, hematology units, they'll have a point-of-use filter for collecting water for patients. And what do they do? It's above a standard kitchen sink, and you see the jugs rested on the sink, and this now becomes a vehicle for transmission of wastewater organisms. So uh, we need, there's still a lot of things we need to look at. Thank you so much. Um, that's been fantastic. And we really appreciate your time being guests on the podcast today. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank, you. thank you for having us. Thank you very much for listening. Um, we really hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, once again, if you want any further information about the Healthcare Infection Society, you can find their website at www.his.org.uk and also via the usual Twitter channels as well. We'd encourage you to like, rate and subscribe the podcast if you want regular updates for when new podcasts are going to be released. Thanks very much. Bye.